Also, I'm glad Jason Todd is dead. He's not dead no uh, more. Uh, Spoilers. Uh, one of my great regrets in life is voting for Jason Todd to die. First of all, I was in trouble for spending two ninety five per minute. But secondly, it's <laughs> just not cool. Just not cool. The Major Spoilers podcast covers news, reviews, and of course, spoilers, and goes into details about the topics discussed. So if you haven't read, listened, or watched the items we talk about, you might want to come back later. Thank you to everyone who supports this show and all of the shows in the Major Spoilers podcast network. If you're not already, you can become a Major Spoilers member by signing up at patreon.com slash majorspoilers. I'm Matthew. I'm Ashley. I'm Rodrigo. And I'm Steven, and you're listening to the Major Spoilers Podcast, the podcast for pop culture and comic fans just like you. In this issue, it's a deep dive into the immediate post-crisis history of the Cape Crusader, including the controversial battle with the KG Beast. Superman goes undercover, the West Coast Avengers cover is blown, and Johnny takes flight through the galaxy in a comic that has a cover. Plus, we'll weigh in on the big 8-0, argue the merits of the kick-butt poll of the week, and probably make some excellent points. Probably. There's something happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear, but I do know the Buffalo Springfield was a rifle, and the Major Spoilers podcast is on the air. Welcome to issue 822 of the Major Spoilers podcast. Thank you, everybody, for joining us on this special week. Special week not only for you, not only for me, not only for for Ashley and Matthew and Rodrigo, but it's also a special week for Batman. Oh. This Saturday, March 30th, 2019, Batman turns 80 years old. First appearing in comics in uh, March, uh, March 30th, Detective Comics number 27, 1939, Batman's first appearance. Is that the one where this man is being in trouble? That is the one where he's flying over the rooftops with the guy under his arm and he's swinging on the thing. Mm. I don't think that's the cover of this man is being in trouble, though. Maybe it is. No, this man is being in trouble is the detective comics immediately before the first appearance of Batman, isn't it? Maybe. Number 26. Detective 26. Uh, Yeah, it has that man being in trouble. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there you go, listeners. That's a deep, deep cut. And in order to discover that deep cut, you need to go back into the archives like 10 years, maybe, (laughs) of the Major Spoilers podcast. We're not good at time. It could be six minutes for all Eh, Time keeps on slipping into the future. So uh, Batman, 80 years old. That's pretty good milestone, right? I mean, uh, we do have characters that are older. You know, Superman's older by a year. Slime Bradley is older by a year or by many years, actually, by uh, about three years. Older than, uh, I think Slab was from 1936. I mean, yeah. Uh, the black bat where Batman gets most of his, uh, Zorro, is Zorro older. is older than Batman. Yeah. The shadow order older than Batman, but Hey, let's not make subtle jabs, uh, at, at Batman and how Bill Finger and, uh, yeah, let's Bob make Bob him off. <laughs> I don't know how subtle either of those jabs were, but nonetheless, I would love to see a comic in which Batman at 80 is ready to retire into the public domain, but Mickey Mouse won't let him. Yeah, you can't go. Oh, oh my God. Yeah. Alfred, I know what my new costume will be. Smash cut to Batman with Mickey Mouse ears. <laughs> Criminals are a superstitious and cowardly lot. But they love and having it fun. It is a small world. <laughs> 
So what do, we, what do we think about Batman, 80 years of Batman? I'd say there's a lot of really good Batman in 80 years. I would agree. A lot more bad, but there's a lot of really I don't good know about. Batman. I don't know about a lot of bad. I would say that there's more bad than good, but I mean, that's Sturgeon's law. That's true of everything. That's not necessarily me taking shots at Batman, but I mean, there are some excellent bat stories out there. It's it's certainly true of something that has the volume of text that Batman that Batman has. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you potentially could have a comic book hero that has 100% good issues, but chances are that guy got canceled pretty early on. Yeah, that's Miracle Man and it went 23 issues and everything fell apart. Yep. When mm-hmm. you when you have as much text and as many people putting their hands on a character, you end up with lots of bad stuff, lots, you know, plenty of good stuff. But more importantly, you end up with sort of like these like epochs of mm-hmm. of Batman. And that's that's what that's what's real interesting to me is is a Batman comic like the one that we're uh, talking about tonight, literally acknowledging that Batman's costume is blue and gray. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like this is this is your mainstream Batman at the time, and his costume was blue and gray, not black. Mm-hmm. It was blue and gray. You know, and it's like that's something that for some eras of Batman is inconceivable. Oh, and Batman, you know, like, Batman crying is inconceivable, yeah. but we see Batman, it. Batman losing, Batman screwing up, Batman missing stuff. You know, it's like mm-hmm. there there are all of these. It's like. And and Batman has been around long enough that you see these eras sort of repeat. Like your kind of late golden age Batman is infallible, and then eventually you get into Batman is kind of a normal person, screwing up, doing all these things. You know, it's like what's interesting about him is the fact that he doesn't have any superpowers, and then eventually Batman becomes infallible again. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it's like it's it's interesting to see these trends come by and also to kind of hear people talk about him and and how it kind of feels like well batman has always been this way and it's like well you know there used to be a tv show starring adam west so no so you bring up an important point and i've i've mentioned this before and i'm going to mention it again because i think it is something that people might want to read especially as batman turns 80 and they're wondering when you hear someone say this is the way batman has always been they need to read a book called the the Cape Crusade, Caped Crusader. I'm sorry, the Caped Crusade: Batman and the Rise of Nerd Culture by Glenn Weldon. I read this a year or two ago, and it really talks about how yes, when Batman debuted in Detective Comics uh, 27, he was this dark, brooding character, and for about a year, that's what he was, and that's who he was. Until people came around and said, oh, no, uh, we got to make him a little bit more kid friendly. Let's introduce Robin. We're going to get under a lot of pressure. We're going to get into a lot of trouble. And we start to enter this era of Batman doing more uh, happy Batman. And certainly when 66 Batman came out, uh, it was a big, huge thing. But there were a lot of people who were like, but that's not my Batman. That's not the way Batman is supposed to be. And guess what? By the time we hit the 70s and the 80s and we start to get grimdark Batman coming back in again. Guess who are the people that were like, my Batman is first year Batman, the one who's, you know, throwing people not throwing people into vats, but certainly not saving them from falling into vats. Uh, (laughs) But this book really goes into that and talks about how this nerd culture rose up through uh, Batman and how what we have today, good or bad about nerd culture, has its roots in the Batman fandom. 
it's it's really amazing. So I would really recommend that people read that if they want to understand how nerd culture has got to the place where it's at now. But what I want to know from you guys, and Ashley, I'm going to ask you first. Mm. Where was the first place that you encountered Batman? That oh, you distinctly easy. remember this is Batman. Uh, yeah, that's really easy. So for me, um, it was reruns of the Adam West series oh, on TV. Okay. All right. All right. What about you, Rodrigo? Oh, certainly it was uh, uh, reruns of the Adam West TV show in Spanish. Mm-hmm. Cool. That had to be interesting. Bruno Diaz. Yeah, Bruno Diaz. Uh, trying to outsmart Gatubela. <laughs> Matthew, what about you? Uh, Filmation's The New Adventures of Batman, uh, featuring the voice of Olin Sewell. Uh, actually, The New Adventures may have had Adam West, but my brain always wants Olin Sewell, who did the voice on Super Friends and one of the earlier uh, Filmation joints as Batman. But it's also the point where I learned to love Batmite mm-hmm. and Clayface. And to love that 70s open cockpit Batmobile that you could leap into. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, For me, it was definitely Super Friends, right? You get up a Saturday morning at 6 a.m., wait for the TV station to turn on. And then an hour and a half later, the Super Friends are on with Batman and Robin. And and you kind of that's kind of where I knew who Batman was. And he's like, oh, this Batman's not such a bad guy. He's not scaring me. And he then you punch anybody. No, he's, he's pretty not nice. Allowed to punch anybody. And then then I ran into after that is probably hmm, six years old, maybe maybe five. The reruns of the Batman 66. And, you know, yeah. I, I would be curious for all of us that said Batman 66. At what point did you realize that this was a parody of of Batman? Or this was making light of Batman and not what was in the comic books, because for years I took this seriously. I was like, oh, man. This is Batman and these are serious adventures and oh, look out. Here comes the egghead and here comes, you know, uh, King Tut. Uh, Oh, that Riddler is quite the guy. And oh, I just wish Batman could find a place to throw away a bomb. But then at some point I I realized that it's like, oh, they're doing this tongue in cheek. Tongue in cheek for certain. I don't know if I would agree that it's parody. I think it's definitely camp. It's high. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Camp. Um, that version of the show, I actually know better from the movie, uh, the Mm -hmm. 66 Batman movie Mm -hmm. with, uh, the ridiculous moments, uh, with the United underground and working at the United nations and trying to figure out, you know, how to separate the powder vials of each person. They got a little bit of dust mixed up and they were all speaking a different language. Right. I like that movie. Um, a lot more than I like the show in a lot of ways, partly because it's a it's a narrative that has an ending, even if that ending is kind of a teehee slap on the back joke. But Rodrigo or Ashley, did when did when did you realize that Batman was camp and not? Oh, and not, um, not until I think I was probably a teenager. Mm-hmm. And, and um, do you remember when you discovered that or how you discovered that? Not, I don't have like a specific like aha moment, but I mm. remember like reflecting back on it. But that was also when it was really trendy to kind of be disrespectful of that television show. Mm-hmm. And I've I've also watched the zeitgeist swing back around, and people are embracing it again. And oh sure, every every you know everyone was like really looking forward to um the the big collection that came out a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not this was like years and years later, but I went and saw a double feature at the Egyptian theater in Hollywood of um Mask of the Phantasm and then the Adam West Batman movie. 
And uh, it was kind of <laughs> like watching the best Batman movie and the worst Batman movie back to back. Yeah. Um, which is me putting a, a value judgment on it, of course. But that was when I was like, oh. And also as a Robin fan, Batman 66 is why people think Robin is silly. Yeah. And, yeah. Certainly... and, I, and I'm not blaming anyone for it. I just I mean that as a statement of fact. And as a Robin fan to watch it, it is sometimes frustrating. Yeah. And I think, too, when you look at probably this time period that you're talking about, Ashley, for the most part, everyone had very, very good thoughts about Batman 66 up until Tim Burton came out with his movie. And then people were like, ah, ah, that Batman 66, what a joke. Which I'll say, you go back and watch that Tim Burton movie, it ain't much less campy than the Adam West stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, It's it's just aesthetically darker. Yeah. That whole... uh, I don't know. The moment where he takes out the little gun and extends the barrel and shoots down the bat yeah. wing, whatever yeah. it is. I'm just like, yeah, this is just as silly as any of the battles with King Tut or, you know, Cesar Romero's Joker. Totally. Who, by the way, is the best Joker? Hmm. Don't at me. Hmm. <clears throat> I'm still gonna have to go with Mark Hamill. I think I think for I don't know, what what are some of your favorite Batman moments or stories or whatever's? The greatest Batman moment of all time takes place in the final third of the Batman, the Brave and the Bold episode, Terror of the Music Meister, where Batman, using a special auto-tone bat device that he has in his belt, gets in a singing competition with Neil Patrick Harris. And it's this wonderful moment where Batman is like, whoa. You just have to love that. That whole episode is wonderful. It's one of my favorite Batman outings ever. Is that Diedrich Bader? Bader, What is his name? Bader? Bader? Diedrich Bader. Diedrich Bader Bader from the the Drew Carey show as Batman and Neil Patrick Harris as the music meister. Yeah. Great episode. What about you, Rodrigo? Do you have a a great Batman moment? Uh, There was a lot of stuff that I enjoyed from the uh, Batman, the animated series. Um and the uh, and the justice league i've always really liked that portrayal of batman because it's a very complete portrayal of batman you get some batman some bruce wayne um it's batman uh kind of at at medium high efficiency you know he's not completely infallible things get past them and stuff and uh but also you see him you see a, a batman who's compassionate you see a Batman, you know, is like, I'm sure we can, everyone who's seen it can recall in their mind, like a moment where like Batman is like surprised and he has like a, a little sad mouth, but his eyes are like little happy mouths, you know, to show that he's like upset. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, this is not a Batman who doesn't sit down. This is not a Batman who, you know, can't armor his head or whatever. Like, this is, yeah, this is a guy who, um, at least at first has, uh, some issues, you know, later on in the justice league, he's got some electro punching powers and he's like hitting dark side, um, and, and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, there's some leeway there, but I, I always really enjoyed that portrayal of Batman. And I recognize that a lot of people have too, which is why Kevin Conroy uh, like people will record Kevin Conroy's like final breath and put it into a Batman movie. 
you know, he's he's just never going to escape escape that ever. Mm-hmm. Nope. Ashley, what about you? Um, I think it's tough not to just agree with Rodrigo about the animated Batman. Mm-hmm. Also, because just in terms of screen hours, it's the longest exposure we've had to a character or a version of Batman and the most room for change. Like you get to see him do some of the most dynamic Batman things. You get to see him be happy and have relationships. You get to see him with most of the Robins Mm -hmm. trying to think. Um, if you waste your time watching Batman beyond, you get to watch him as an old man. You get to see him over the course of most of his Mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. I hate Batman beyond and I'll be mad about it until I die. (laughs) (laughs) So there's, you know, for me, Dark Knight Returns is one of those moments where I finally was like, OK, I need to because the single issues had been out uh, for a long time. And then I kept seeing these trade paperbacks show up at the bookstores and everything. And finally, I was like, OK, I'm going to buy this thing and really see what the, the hubbub is about, because it's always getting a high place and is very prominently displayed in the bookstores and everything. And I'm liking Batman for what it is. And so I read the Dark Knight Returns. And for me, it is a moment where I was just like, oh, this is what you can do with comic book storytelling. This is this is very interesting. This is really cool. This is creating a world based on something that we know from the present, but projecting into the future. And there's like all sorts of questions like, why does Green Arrow not have an arm? You know, and then things that you're just left with questioning, but it just seems fully formed and and just really realistic. And I always enjoyed that because it really unlocked for me this ability of, Oh, here's comics as a visual medium, and here's how you can tell comics in a very, very different way than what the normal comic book off the rack was doing at the time. But the best Batman moment for me, I was working in a radio station in 1992, and I was working evening shift. And one of the things that you do when you're working as, a, as a, an announcer at a radio station in the evening shift is your radio station's too cheap to afford. No, not to afford. To pay for custodial to come in so the late overnight and late night uh announcers have to go and clean all the offices and so i go up and i'm emptying the trash and i turn on the program the light in the program director's office and there on the wall is this big promotional poster from fox for the batman animated series and it is the in credit logo Batman, you know, where it's the, the red mm. moon behind him and the cape is up and you just see the silhouette and the lines. Yep. And it's, you know, premiering on Fox September 5th, you know, Fox Kids. And I looked at that poster and I immediately called, just dropped everything that I was doing. I called the program director at home and I was like, Todd, um, I noticed you have this Batman animated series poster in your office. And he's like, yeah. And he's kind of laughing because he's like, why are you calling me at home at night? When I was just in the office like three hours ago and I'm like, um, can I have that poster? I mean, uh, he's like, yeah, sure. And I was like, can I have it now? And he's like, I guess I took that. <laughs> I took that. I immediately say, okay, cool. Thank Goodbye. And before, I mean, there's no one else in the building. There was very little chance that anyone else in the time that I was talking to him on the phone, that someone else would have come in the building and taken that poster and made off with it. But I said, okay, goodbye. Flipped on a new song, ran back upstairs took that poster off the roll, rolled it up, and I still have it today. It's framed. It's one of the very first, uh, you know, big movie-esque type posters that I have for Batman the Animated Series, and that is my favorite Batman moment of all time because, sure enough, I think that was in May or June 
when that poster showed up in his office. And then it was just a few months to get super hyped about the debut of uh, Batman the Animated Series on TV. So that's my that's my my favorite Batman moment of all time when you're just like for the first time here's Batman the Animated Series. I don't even think we had seen anything in Wizard Magazine at that point. But my first look at the Batman Animated Series in this promotional poster in the program director's office and I'm like I gots to have this right now. And uh I was right. It was it was the best uh, Batman that we've ever seen. So there you go. Uh anything else? Any anything else you guys want to talk about Batman as he is uh, hitting the his 80th birthday a little bit later in the show we'll be looking at uh, uh Batman in the 80s. Not in his 80s, but in the 80s. 80s Batman. 80s Batman. Makes perfect sense. Yes it is. Anything else you guys want to talk about Batman? Everybody's so quiet. Well, I mean, there's a lot of things you can say about Batman. But not necessarily all of them are good for an anniversary. I would say that as with any of the really big pop culture type characters, there is an elasticity to Batman that allows him to be more than one thing. To simultaneously be on the stance as your 66 Batman and your get over my head Batman. And I like that. And you know, certainly not subtweeting anybody in particular. If you try and tell me that any one iteration is the one true Batman, first of all, in the words of the great Captain yeah, James I Seeker, mean, get a life. Zack Snyder came out this week. I think it was this week, right? And was like, hey, man, yeah. you, you kids, if you don't understand that Batman kills, then you're not living in the real world. First of all, we're talking about a movie, which is not the real world anyway. But th- yeah. I, I and I'm not I'm not justifying what he said because I don't agree with what he said. But I can see where he's talking from the movie perspective where movies tend to skew a little bit more hardcore. Honestly, that's that's what was nice about being like some of my first exposure to Batman being the Adam West show is that there's nothing else like it. If you're like, well, I like Batman and definitely at the time right now, there there's straight up a comic about it. But at the time, you know, if I was I, I must have been watching reruns in the 80s. Right. So it's like if I was like, oh, I like Batman and I went to a store and I found a Batman, that Batman would have more closely resembled what we're going to be looking at tonight, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, which involves Batman getting shot at with real bullets and people actually bleeding and stuff like that. Yeah. So I... it it really set me on this thing of being like, there are lots of different interpretations of Batman. You can have your favorite. You can have one that you prefer, you know, it's like, we always get into the discussion of like, who is the real one is, is Batman like pretending to be Bruce Wayne and really he's just a pajama psycho or (laughs) is Bruce Wayne like a person, right? It's like, that's, that's a fair argument to have with your friends. It's not a big deal. Um, and you'll find writers who write Batman in that mode and you'll find writers who definitely don't because they hate that. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's, like that, I feel that's how you have to approach Batman. Otherwise, you're going to get very angry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, my Actually, my favorite both fake. His real face is Mattress Malone. My oh, favorite type of Batman is Detective Batman, right? Mm-hmm. Where Batman is literally being a detective and solving a crime, whatever that may be. He's following the clues. He's putting two and two together. Yes, he may have an aha moment of, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that this was the bad guy and the bad guy's right behind me with a knife. I I, kind of like, I really like that kind of Batman where he's not this 
he's got a plan for everything and a contingency for anything that might happen. And he's got everything in his utility belt. I like a Batman who can get the drop pulled on him. I like the Batman that will get a brick upside the head and wake up bound in a uh, cage beneath the water with water rushing in. Uh, that is the kind of Batman that I like. And I know some people are like, no, it's got to be Batman is perfect. And he knocks him out with one punch type stuff. But I don't know. What, cool. what Do you guys have a favorite type of Batman? I have a real fondness for super dick Batman <laughs> because that was when I was first buying my own comics as a teen and a young adult that wasn't just going to the quarter bin or the sale bin and picking everything that had something on it that I either recognized or thought looked cool. Um, like some of the first stories that I bought on my own with my own money were things like a uh, Bruce Wayne murderer oh, yeah, or yeah. Um, all the, the first set of collections of no man's land. And like, that is the height of like Batman is a complete jerk. He hits Nightwing in the face in the bat cave and you're like wow and and i know it's so toxic and i know um i would never write batman like that but there is part of me that it does expect that of that character because those were such formative stories for uh what i was reading and like when they came into my life and mm -hmm. probably because i do have such a fondness for the supporting cast and the legacy characters i kind of like that even if you're in the bat family like as the robins and the bat girls you have to band together because batman might hit you if you're too bad <laughs> that is <laughs> horrible when you think about it horrible yeah, yeah. matthew is yours is yours campy batman is yours uh uh 66 batman no actually my favorite batman of all is Grant Morrison's Justice League run. Oh, where, my God. Where they were playing with that super jerk Batman, where they were playing with he's infallible and can always win. But you have these moments. The The one that always sticks in my head is 20 years in the future, on Apocalypse, they find Desaad, and Desaad takes off his mask, and he's like, I'm really Batman. 20 years ago, <laughs> I faked my own death and became Desaad. But the thing that always sells it for me is Grant Morrison's Batman will laugh, but he does it like this. Yeah. <laughs> the Batman, the, the Grant Morrison Batman, who's like, Desaad never saw it coming. <laughs> I just love that little, that little injection of humanity into this character who is this hardcore turbo douche who, if you met him in a gym, you just want to get away from him. But it's so wonderful to see that Batman operating on the level of the metahumans. That Batman makes sense in the Justice League. That Batman makes sense as a peer of Superman, as a peer of John Jones, as a peer of Wonder Woman. And that's the Batman that I really love because in my mind, you know, I, I cut my teeth on Legion of Superheroes. You got the big guys with the big powers and you need to have that huge Batman, that over-the-top Batman moment you've got to be able to sell that and that batman really feels like he belongs in a dc universe where everybody else exists yeah rodrigo do you have a favorite batman yeah i guess i kind of like um i kind of like teammate batman oh yeah so i don't i i kind of i kind of hate it when batman's in the justice league a, a lot of the time because it's such a staple like he has to be in the justice league a lot of the time and you're like, well, could somebody else be in the Justice League or whatever? But when Batman is well-written in the Justice League, uh, I like it because there are moments like, 
you know, going back to the JLU, that thing where, uh, like, Orion is like, the Flash is a huge joke, and Batman is like, listen, shut up. And I was like, <laughs> let's let's take a trip and see why the Flash is actually great for what he is and why he's great for his city. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's like, uh, I like I like I like Dad Batman. You know, where he's yeah. got oh, like three Robins and two Bat Girls or the Outsiders, and and it rubs up against his like dark loner persona. Mm-hmm. And I I think that sometimes it's written poorly like the writer still wants that like that like super infallible lone wolf batman but also he's being followed by eight kids and then it's funny Mm -hmm. like without meaning to be Uh, and then when it's written well it's like purposely funny it is like somebody who clearly has dealt with a lot of trauma in their life trying not to traumatize these kids as well and (laughs) trying to protect them but only one and you know it all it all has to start with the like conceit that these super kids are going to run out and do this on their own if batman doesn't get involved and gives right. them some guidance right right, right. so vegetables. once you once you establish that it's like yeah batman trying to be there trying to protect these kids while also <laughs> trying to maintain any amount of mystique to himself mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um that Take that tension stay away from I, the joker with a crowbar yeah i really like that tension i i mean i like the morrison stuff i like scenes with Batman and Kyle Rayner and uh, Wally West. Uh, like anytime Batman interacts with Plastic Man, uh, is hilarious um, because you have that tension, right? No pun intended. Yeah. Um, it's like teammate Batman. Batman as part of a crew uh, is good because it also it also keeps him under control, right? Batman doesn't just run away from the show. Uh, or run away with the show because you also have all these other cool guys there on the team. Yeah. So for you, team Batman brings out more of his humanity. Yeah. Team Batman just keeps, keeps the overwhelming Batman stuff under control. Yeah. And yeah, because, because when you have 10 people on screen, you have to give him something to do and he's not going to be the punchiest and he's not Mm going to be the laseriest. So a lot of the time, yeah, they do bring up his personality. Yeah. Which is mm-hmm. interesting. So, yes, Zack Snyder can have a Batman that kills, and that can be his favorite type of Batman. But every single one of us have a different take of Batman and a different uh, why we like Batman or the type of Batman that we like and what we love. And uh, I think that's very interesting. It goes back to what Matthew said a little bit ago about Batman is malleable. Uh, mm-hmm. The time stream is not fixed. Batman can be anything no. you want him to be if you if you tell the story right. Yeah, very if cool. You tell the story well. You can do anything. Yep. Uh, some people may be thinking, "Oh my goodness, we're getting ready for the reviews. You guys must be reviewing Detective Comics number one thousand, which is also another big milestone for Batman this week, uh, or at to least which Detective we say, Comics." No, we're not going to do that this week on the show. In- no. But but here's the thing: before you slam your your mobile device on the ground really hard in frustration, just realize this: on Thursday. Matthew and I will be recording a new Dueling Review episode, and based on your demand for it, we will be reviewing Detective Comics number 1000 on Dueling Review. It comes out this Thursday. Because you demanded it, faithful spoilerite. Yep, 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 yep. And uh, we'll talk about how you can demand more comics that we read on Dueling Review on the Thursday show. So you'll want to download that or check it out at Majorspoilers.com. Speaking of something else that you guys need to check out, 
Uh, Ashley, was it just two weeks ago we were talking about this brand new Kickstarter that you were launching for Aurora and the uh, and the Eagle? And, yeah, a little little less than two weeks ago. And like a week later, you hit your goal. Yeah, we funded in two days, which is super great. That is um, awesome. But now we actually just blew past our first stretch goal the other day. And I'm hoping I announced the new stretch goal in a backers only update. Uh, we're at we're just over 7,500 right now. And if we can hit uh, 10,000, then I can go ahead and just green light making the rest of the graphic novel. And for everyone who backs this campaign, which is for the first chapter, the first 20 pages, they're going to get a discount code so that when the graphic novel comes out, because they supported it first and because they supported the initial push, they will be able to get that before anyone else and cool. at a cheaper rate than anyone else. Nice. So it's only if we hit 10,000. So please go to auroraandtheeagle.com, share the link, donate anything, tell your friends about it. I would greatly appreciate it. And I just upped my pledge while you were talking about it. I was just like, oh, I've, got to, I've got to get Ashley some more money to make this, this happen. <laughs> so listeners, what are you waiting for? Auroraandtheeagle.com. And uh, if you haven't already pledged, pledge. And if you have pledged, maybe look at some of those stretch goals and see if we can uh, we can get there. Heck yeah, we still have a lot of great uh, script and portfolio reviews available. So if you like uh, if you like Wonder Woman or the Green Lantern, Liam Sharp has a portfolio review that's still available. So consider Ooh, that. You guys get on that. And in the meantime, while we wait two more days for you to hit that goal, Ashley. That's right. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's get to some reviews. Do, 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 do. Review coming out on uh, March twentieth last week. West Coast Avengers, yeah, yeah, yeah. Da, da, da. Number right. nine from uh, Marvel <laughs> Comics. Ashley, in the rest of the geek history lesson, people know what that's about. Heck yeah. So, Matthew, what's going on with the West Coast Avengers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Number nine. West Coast Avengers, number nine. One of my favorite Marvel books, which of course means that they recently announced that it's ending soon, uh, picks up where number eight left off. If you're familiar with the West Coast Avengers, it goes a little something like this The leader is Hawkeye. Which Her one? Kid sidekick is Hawkeye. Kate, the good Hawkeye, is the leader. Clint, the other Hawkeye, is her Hawkeye buddy. The team consists of uh, Miss America, Gwen Poole, Kid Omega, and her new boyfriend who has superpowers, and his name is Fuse. So, in the last issue, the team split up, and four of them went undercover with Kate's ex-boyfriend, Marvel Boy, in a cult that they thought was run by Skrulls. Turns out it's not Skrulls. It's vampires. Oh, Ah, whereas so the other half of the team, or as I call them, Team Pink Hair, went undercover in Madame Mask's organization to figure out whether or not they were related to the Not Scrolls. So, at the end of the episode, half the team is captured by vampires, and the ones with pink hair are like, hey, we're going home now. Because they have pink hair, and also so, superpowers. So, Matthew, this just, oh man, I'm going to guess that Blade shows up to rescue them. No, Blade is in the regular Avengers title right now. Oh, but it's a good oh. call. So the that perfect opportunity. Mm. Well, you know who comes up and saves them? Frankenstein's monster. No, but you remember how I mentioned how Kate has a new boyfriend and he's a superhero called Fuse. Yeah. He has a little sister. What's her and name? little sister's name is Ramon. Okay. Ramon also has superpowers like Fuse. And we discover that Ramon and Fuse have a very interesting backstory because their mother 
uh, she explains in this issue, ran away from her home after being thrown out of the Dora Milaje. Ooh, somebody going to be in trouble. Which does explain one of the big questions about this book that we've been asking all along is, how does Fuse have vibranium lip rings that he can use to turn himself into vibranium? And the answer is, uh, because his mom is from Wakanda. But uh, Gwenpool, Kid Omega, who again is uh, the former Phoenix, or the once former Phoenix, I don't know, Quentin Quire, you know the jerk from New X-Men? Oh yeah, that guy. Yep, and Gwenpool have teamed up with this new girl who has really cool armor now, and they're going to run in and they're going to save the day because the vampires have been feeding off Miss America. Oh, no. Who is who is super, super powerful. Wait. Okay, and stuff Comics happens. are always political people. Just remember that. What? No. Vampires feeding Miss off America. America? Yeah. America Chavez. Oh, Steven. America Chavez, who is, by the way, one of my favorite Marvel heroes and deserves to lead the Avengers again. Um, it spends most of her time in this issue unconscious hanging from the wall, but you know, you can't always have Batman be the guy who punches everybody in the face. But as the issue ends, we find that everybody comes back together and uh, Hawkeye and Hawkeye manage to bust out of their chains and start a fight. And then the backup squad shows up and then the rest of the team shows up and then Kate's mom shows up and a shocking final panel for Hawkeye and Hawkeye and also Ms. America. I'm not saying there's more vampiring. I'm just saying, my gosh, it's an awesome, awesome book. The thing that I really love about West Coast Avengers is the art. Gang Kyuk Lim is handling the art. And this is a name that I am definitely going to look for on other books because it's kind of like an amalgam of a little bit of George Perez and a little bit of uh, Frank Quitely. And mm. just a smidge, the tiniest smidge, if you will, of uh, Liam Sharp. So if you say to yourself, what would that look like? Go read West Coast Avengers. It's a really solid looking book. It has the kind of cool moments where, you know, the Hawkeyes are bantering back and forth. I don't know what's going on here. Kate, wake up. And Kate wakes up screaming, science monkeys. And then we have about two pages of discussion with the Hawkeyes hanging upside down, about to be fed to vampires, arguing on what science monkeys means and whether or not they're really in trouble. I kind of love that. And it's got the, you know, the bits and pieces with Gwenpool, who doesn't quite break the fourth wall, but comes really close to breaking the fourth wall. Also, the premise of this book is that they're on a reality show and the team is being bankrolled by a reality show. So occasionally you have moments where people turn directly to the camera and say, Hey, camera guy, did you get that? Which I'm going to tell you is it does feel a little shop worn. It feels a little played. We've seen it a lot, but it's done well here. You gotta, you gotta imagine that this is actually really alarming for anybody who's actually watching in the Marvel universe. Cause like two out of two reality show, uh, super teams have ended up mega dead. <laughs> super mega dead, right? <laughs> and if you're a fan of America, you don't want America to end up dead like the no, New Warriors. No, you don't. I'm still heartbroken about the New Warriors, you guys. So what's the bottom line four. here for West Coast Avengers? Four slices of meatloaf for West Coast Avengers number nine, written by Kelly Thompson, art by Gang Kyuk Lim. Go check it out. It's a good book. Even if it does end with number 12, they'll be back. They always come back. America yeah. will be back soon, and America will be... Great awesome, game. and we will read her. I will end you. <laughs> hey, landing on our physically hand, landing on our laps this morning. 
was a uh, book from uh, Archie Comics, Sabrina the Teenage Witch getting an all-new limited-run series, and uh, it arrives tomorrow, or today, or yesterday, depending on when you're listening. Hello, future people. Ashley, give us a rundown of what's going on in the world of Sabrina the Teenage Witch. So when you're finished reading West Coast Avengers and you love it, you can hop over and pick up Sabrina the Teenage Witch number one because it's also written by Kelly Thompson (laughs) and Hmm. uh, enjoy uh, that same kind of vibe. This is not a reboot of Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, which I will continue to hope for, even though there's absolutely no way it's going to happen. And it's not a relaunch of the comic that was sort of concurrent to the show and it's not Sabrina from the Mark Wade Veronica Fish stuff, even though this is drawn and arted mostly by Veronica Fish. <laughs> it's kind of, I know that's a lot of things it's not. It's kind of a mix between the Sabrina from the main Archie Coom Jughead continuity and the chilling adventures because she looks like the chilling adventures there's that kind of stakes the book ends and closes with a scary monster mystery which i love that's a little too gruesome for wee wee children but is not uh, nearly as bloody as chilling adventures i'm pretty sure harvey's gonna make it out of this one also mad props for making harvey a palatable interesting and nice character in my opinion, hasn't been done so far in Sabrina's entire history. Uh, I was pretty impressed with that in this first issue. I really loved this book from from Boo. Uh, Salem is awesome in it. He's super cute. There's a cat butt joke right out the back. And the trappings of Sabrina's rooms are, are very cool. There's a Riverdale poster on her wall, which is like a fun sort of meta-narrative nod to what is popping over at Archie right now. It's a great mix of the two things that have made this character the most popular and the most transcendent in popular culture and the reason why she is still around. And frankly, I like everything Kelly Thompson does. Um, I have since she was just doing her own indie stuff like Heart in a Box. So I was going to be in on this from the beginning. I'm so excited that we have a regular ongoing Sabrina series uh, that touch wood comes out regularly because Veronica Fish's books tend to hit their deadlines. Yeah. Um, I'll be sad if that doesn't turn out to be the case. I'm really excited to see where it goes. This first issue introduces you to a lot of familiar characters and concepts, the new play settings and what the mystery of the first arc is going to be. It's not necessarily uh, revelatory. It doesn't add anything new to the Sabrina mythos, but I think it's, truly like practically perfect in every way so i gave it five out of five slices of meatloaf it was absolutely delightful very very cool now this is only a miniseries five issue miniseries are you hoping from this first launch that this becomes an ongoing or do you want to wait a few more to see what happens i am and i'm pretty confident uh that it will okay because when the archie books sell they pretty much two weeks later announce that they're going to full series yeah very cool so hopefully yes All right. Thank you, Ashley. Uh, DC Comics this week has Action Comics number 1009 from Brian Michael Bendis and Steve Epting. This uh, continues the story of Leviathan and the Cobra Cult uh, going all out and unleashing war. And I think I missed an issue or two because the last time I remember Superman was saving Amanda Waller from falling off a building, 
this issue, she's busting into Clark and Lois's apartment and saying, Superman, you got to save me. And then what happens is we realize that Leviathan, which is the um, Italia Ghoul run organization, has attacked like everybody, the DEO, the CIA, the FBI, uh, uh, the Amanda Waller uh, Argus and everything. And it's a little bit confusing because we don't because I don't know what's going on, because like I said, I missed an issue. But here's what I like about what Brian Michael Bendis is doing. He goes in and he says, hey, you know who we haven't heard from in a while? Uh, Mr. Bones or whatever. Uh, what's his name? Commander Bones, Commissioner Bones, Dr. Bones, the guy, uh, the head of the DEO. Director Bones. Director Bones. That's it. Let's let's do a scene where he's freaking out because the entire building is collapsed and he's desperately trying to find any survivors underneath. And Superman has to come and say, there's nobody that's surviving underneath that. Come with me. And we'll get this worked out. And we get to see Lois punch Amanda Waller in the face for blurting out uh, Superman's secret identity. We also have a little touching moment where Superman has to go and check in on Lois's dad. Uh, We also get Jimmy just kind of standing around and really not making the connection between Superman (laughs) and Clark Kent. uh, Where And you can tell that Lois and Amanda Waller, they they get evacuated to um, uh, the Fortress of Solitude. And Jimmy is there, too. And Amanda and Lois are are just dancing around this this topic about, you know, Waller just busting into their apartment, screaming out Clark's name. And Jimmy's like, yeah, where's Clark at anyway? And they're like, "Uh, he's in a super secret undercover mission right now, Jimmy. And he's like, oh, okay." But the most shocking thing that happens is at the end of the issue. And this is what they've made a big deal of for uh, issue one thousand and ten. Clark goes undercover as an agent of Spiral, and he can flex his muscles and make a beard pop out and make his hair get all wavy. And he kind of looks like a a bulked up uh, uh, what's his name from uh, uh, Guardians of the Ma- Galaxy, Macho Man Randy Savage. Kind of a little bit. I don't know. It's yeah. really weird because the way that Steve Epting draws Superman is he's kind of got a beefy face, but then he tries to make him look like uh, Bradley Cooper. With the hair and the beard and everything. And it's just like, well, this is really kind of weird looking. And so, yeah, uh, Superman has, uh, I don't know if he's exposed to some gold kryptonite or what's going on. Because gold kryptonite kills him instantly, right? Gold kryptonite removes his powers permanently. Okay, so that's not what it is. But uh, Lois opens this little box and says, hey, I don't know how this uh, kryptonite technology works. And Superman says, hold on, let me flex my muscles really quick. And then the next thing you know, he's got kind of a, uh, a, a fro and a beard going on. And he's calling up uh, Spiral saying, hey, I'm I'm ready to check in. I've been in deep undercover uh, operations. Let's go. But throughout this entire issue, I mean, they are checking in with a bunch of characters that you don't normally see. I mean, uh, we were talking, Matthew and I were talking in a Legion Clubhouse episode that's coming up in a few months Mm -hmm. where, you know, the Legion of Superheroes is just kind of doing their own thing. And they really don't have any other interactions with any other DC heroes besides Superman and occasionally bumping into uh, an old bat cave hidden away for a thousand years. But this one, Superman's flying all over and the question shows up and like uh, director bone shows up and Amanda Waller is there and he goes and checks on uh, Talia Ghul. And it's just, it's just, I like that this world that Brian Michael Bendis is creating in these pages feels full and rich. And it doesn't feel like these characters are siloed with nothing else going on. 
That being said, I guarantee you that all these attacks that are going on on these government agencies are not going to be talked about in any other of the DC comic books. But still, I like this writing in here. I need to go back and read, I think, 1008 because I'm really missing how did Jimmy get knocked out uh, kind of moment. Uh, the Steve Epting art is is nice. I like how he draws uh, the characters. He really draws Jimmy Olsen as a very young uh, person, like a young college age, younger than Ashley uh, type person. And he just really makes Superman look kind of, I don't want to say doughy, but his face is very meaty. Uh, but I think there's something in this book for a lot of people. And I'm giving this four out of five slices of meatloaf for Action Comics number 1009 out this week from DC Comics. Rodrigo is jumping a week ahead. Yeah. And you are going to, uh, what is Anthem number two from Dark Horse Comics? This comes out on April 3rd. Yeah. So Anthem, as you may or may not know, is a a video game from Bioware. Yeah. It came out, uh, I want to say, a month ago, maybe. Maybe Mm -hmm. less. Mm -hmm. And reception has been mixed uh so i was interested to see the tie-in comic uh by uh dark horse and and see what it was what it was doing and what it was getting at and uh see if this was like a franchise-wide problem or uh or what the dealio was so uh anthem number two uh alexander freed mark walters artist eduardo francisco um the the art is interesting because uh if you've seen stills or or any footage of anthem or if you've played it uh you you know that anthem is all about these like big robot suits that people wear uh they're kind of you know your your iron man type you know robot suit as opposed to like a mobile gundam kind of situation mm-hmm um and they are dense like visually dense to look at they're very they've got lots of like hex patterns and uh you know like tr- like metal trusses and you know bits of uh like what appears to be like plastic or or like ceramic like high impact ceramics here or there um, so they're just like very like there's lots to look at at any single armor, which is probably not a problem when you just have to design the armor once. But and then, you know, put it in a video game and the video game just renders that every time. But when you're doing a comic, you need an artist that is going to be able to like pull that off every time. And as far as that goes, the art is very good. And really the only problem there is that because of the armor's design sometimes it's hard to tell who i'm looking at because there are multiple armored characters Mm -hmm. and they're all kind of because they're all on the same side they're all colored very similarly so i have to like go back and like look and be like oh who is this um so uh, some of the issues that i have with the art are not are by far not the artist's fault uh, I think it's just like the visual design of of the game is so dense that it's very difficult to tell at times what I'm looking at. Uh, so story wise, 
uh, we see a protagonist that kind of um, falls out of favor with her organization and is kind of drifting. Uh, she uh, is like, well, if I'm going to get kicked out, then I'm going to go out with one last hurrah, which is not advisable. Um, and then by the end of this, we we kind of finally have a way forward in, in how our really our two protagonists are going to to proceed um, and, you know, get us to the potentially starting mission of the actual game. Um, I don't know. There's there's a lot going on here that is not terribly interesting. Um, you know, the characters are cool. Their arc seems fine, interesting enough. Uh, but I don't know. I think there's just something about Anthem's world that really doesn't resonate with me very much. Mm-hmm. And so, because it's a set in this world, and, you know, I, I not knowing much about it, and, and the characters not... I mean, uh, to be fair, the characters do spend some amount of time being like, this weird thing over here is this, and here's how it works. So that's nice. Uh, but, uh, you know, there, there's just something about it that is just kind of, I don't know, kind of dull. Yeah. So uh, what's... So, so what kind yes. of a grade are you going to give this? I'm going to give it two and a half slice of meatloaf. Like there's nothing wrong with it. I would say it's average and, you know, to maybe slightly above average because again, I feel like, uh, Eduardo Francisco does a really good job to take, uh, Anthem's look and put it on the page. But also I feel that Anthem's look is somewhat problematic just because, it's 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 a turns like really dense and really samey. So uh, I'm going to give it I'm going to I'm going to just drop it right in the middle. Two and a half slices. All right. Cool. Thank you for that. Rodrigo. That's Anthem number two out next week from Dark Horse Comics and listeners. You can head over to Majorspoilers.com and you can check out all the reviews that we're writing so many. And I know a couple of people have uh, reached out to me and said, uh, Stephen, I heard that you said that you were looking to hire some more writers. Uh, we're not going to hire anybody right now. We're going to wait until May to do it. But here's the thing. If you would like to submit a sample review for consideration, please do it on a new-ish book, you know, something that's come out within the last uh, couple of weeks. And also do it in the format that we write. I'm, I'm not saying mimic what we write, but do it in the format that we write our reviews in. And then uh, after April 15th, I'll begin looking and we'll uh, probably add two or three more writers to the uh, the major spoilers team come May. Uh, drop those reviews in the email. Make sure you include proper postage and send that to uh, podcast at majorspoilers.com. Nobody knows what postage is. It's the year 2019. Oh, okay. That explains why all the mail that I keep sending you keeps coming back. Listeners, Batman turned 80 years old on this week. This weekend, he turns 80 years old. Let's talk some more Batman. Batman, Batman the Cape Crusader, Volume 1. This includes um, Batman. What is this? This is uh, uh, 417 to 425, mm -hmm. 430 to 431, and Batman Annual number 12, yes. which, to be honest, the Batman Annual is probably the weakest part of this whole collection. Well, it's meant to be read first. Yeah, but it's the weakest part of this whole collection. Oh, it absolutely is. Uh, but, <laughs> oh man, there is some stuff in this book that gets 
real interesting. And I will say this up front for people who think that uh, politics and comics is only a recent thing. Let me introduce you to KG Beast and his war on the Reagan Star Wars program of the 1980s leading up to and including President Ronald Reagan in this volume. I will break you. He is he's clearly saying. Oh, my gosh. Uh, KG Beast. This is the time. So this whole volume is around the time that I was really starting to get into comics and really reading because I remember the debut of KG Beast. And in my mind, in my mind, I have a, a memory that KG Beast wore pants and, yeah. uh, and, a, and a tank top along with his, his mask. But this is full on BDSM wear. I mean, he's he, like he looks like Dominatrix Bane. Yeah, I think you're you're thinking of his uh, successor, the NKV Demon, who did have pants. No, I'm, I'm yes. literally <laughs> thinking of KG Beast with the weapon for a hand uh, kind of thing. And uh, this this was really a surprise to see KG Beast all decked out in. Yeah, as, as I don't know, he's he's again, wearing a dance skin. It's a leotard. Yeah, I guess. I, I don't know. It, I just found this very interesting. And the other thing. That as I read this, because KG Beast kind of has become a joke since the fall of the Soviet Union um, sure. Sure. All, all those years ago, because uh, you got to think this is 1988. This is still this is what are we, Matthew, six months, a year away from the uh, Berlin Wall being knocked down. Oh, a good three years. The Berlin Wall went down in 91. For some I reason, say. I keep want to say I always keep thinking that happened in 89. But anyway. Um, I think it's interesting that you think he's like a joke because that character is on Arrow and it's like a very important part of that show's mythology. Is it? Okay, because and I don't right, it is eighty nine. Yeah, I uh, mean we the the thing is is we've definitely seen KGB like get punked out a right. few times. I was going to yeah, say that's, in the that's probably where it comes from in the Suicide animated movie, he gets kidnapped to be part of the Suicide Squad. And Amanda's like, oh, yes, we've implanted uh, explosives in your neck. And he's like, I'm going to leave. And she's like, fine. And he walks out the door and his head blows off. And that's the last you see of KG Beast in that in that movie. And so to me, you know, going back and revisiting this character in the first uh, couple of issues, I think it's a four issue arc or something like that. It is. Yeah. It is amazing to see how much of what we see in KG Beast would later be adapted to Bane. Actually, I everything that I see in the KG Beast is actually later adapted to Batman himself. Um, but yeah, he's definitely kind of a proto Bane. He is the character who will do anything. So when Batman, you know, catches him and traps his hand, he literally just chops off his own hand to escape. He will go to any lengths to fight Batman, and he always has a plan, and he's always stronger, and he has a, a big face on his head, and. I, I'm I'm curious, Rodrigo. How old were you in '88? Uh, five. Does any of this bring back any kind of memories of? Now, granted, you're not in the United States at five, but right. does this bring back any of the talk about the Star Wars program or Ronald Reagan or the Cold War or any of that? That do you have flashbacks? Because I certainly did while I was reading this. No, no, I was way too young for that. Like I, I, I was too young for the '80s. Like, um, war, like we, we'd have to start getting into like Clinton era or, or, oh, okay. or really George Bush senior era stuff mm -hmm. before, you know, I have any recollection of what was going on in the United States. And a lot of that 
comes from me having moved to the United States and retroactively finding out about it rather than <laughs> living right. through it. Because I did, I moved to the U.S. in the '90s. Bill Clinton, right. I think, was already president when right. I moved to the U.S. Yeah, yeah. I was just, I was just curious. And Ashley, I, I don't know what your knowledge or etc. is about Cold War era America and Russia are. Um, but I'm curious well, what your I'd take lived, is on this I'd story. None of them, but I did watch all of the Americans, so it's middling. Okay, so I'm just curious, for those of you that really don't have a recollection of this time period, what does this KGB story mean to you? Because I think, for me, if I were someone like, like Ashley or Rodrigo... The current political state. Oh, yeah, that's, that's the other <laughs> thing I was going to bring up. But I think, looking back, it would be like, what is this crazy stuff? If you never had any any footprint in it, but then also, yes, there seems to be a very what goes around comes around, right? The the history is repeating itself a lot mm-hmm. in, a little in this bit, story. Yeah. Okay, so so just really no connection. Do you like the the villain of KG Beast or not? Mm, I think we've seen him done better, and like honestly, my favorite version is what we see in Arrow, in Arrow? and he's not really kg beast he's just his cuban count he's kind of like a russian gangster mm-hmm. um anatoly who's played by an actor who's like way too good to be on that show um <laughs> but i'm gonna be honest this might be the mo- longest most involved kgb story i've ever read and it's it's fine um i didn't dislike it i like the art in this story in particular it feels very it feels very much like what inspires batman the animated series that we spoke mm-hmm. a lot about at the, at the beginning of this episode because there's a lot of like bright red skies at night with like the sliver of a moon and the silhouette of them fighting or leaping over buildings in the background like it's gorgeous to look at even if maybe the complete weight of the metaphor is lost on me yeah, I mean, I, I was just curious, uh, but I did notice that, wow, there's some of the themes specifically running in the KGB story that are ever present today. Rodrigo, what are you, what are your reactions to this first appearance of KG Beast? Uh, well, I mean, I was surprised because I most of the time that I have encountered KG Beast, it does tend to be like off in the background with a bunch of other rogues, you know, mm-hmm. or something like the, the suicide squad thing where he's like, you know, punked out in some way. So it was interesting to see. It was uh, a lot like that, uh, series that we looked at, like that, uh, no one can stop the juggernaut where it's uh-huh. like Spider-Man versus the juggernaut. Right. Yep. Uh, where it's like, Oh my God, it's the juggernaut actually being scary. It's like KGB is actually doing stuff is like actually pretty good. You guys. Wasn't, if I'm not mistaken, Matthew, wasn't there a time where they tried to, um, bring KGB beast back after the collapse of the Soviet union and tried to give him some more modern take? Well, I mean, they've brought him back repeatedly, but not as, but not as KG beast, but as, as something else, but with a different name. There's a separate character called the NKV Demon that I referenced earlier, but right. KG Beast has been brought back as KG Beast several times to the point where I'm pretty sure there's a new 52 version of him. Oh, I'm sure there is. But yeah, the, the thing about this story that is great, and during the three to four year period when they actually adhered to it, was this was a one-shot story where at the end, KG Beast is dead. Yeah. Or, you know, left in the sewer to starve to death, which yeah. 
started a lot of arguments online about whether or not Batman would kill that haven't, you know, ended in its year 2019. So 30 years later, I, I found but, that very interesting. So at the end of the story, ladies and gentlemen, Batman chases KG beast down into the sewer, has him run into a, um, a cul-de-sac that has a door and Batman simply closes the door and puts some wood in front of it and says, no, I don't have to fight you. And then he walks away and, and uh, tells commissioner Gordon that KG beast isn't going to be bothering anyone anymore. And I was like, Holy crap, in light of the things that are going on this week, it certainly does bring up that question of Batman didn't kill him, but he also didn't have to to save him. And I really, in the back of my mind, was kind of ex- thinking or expecting off panel or something that Batman is like, oh, yeah, he's trapped down there. Just be careful when you open the door. Nope. Left him down there to starve. And this is a Jim Starlin story. And yeah, at Jim this Starlin. point in time, mm-hmm. Starlin is mostly known for his work on Cosmic Marvel like warlock and things of that nature. I had not been familiar with Starlin on a street level character at the time that this book came out. So I at 16, 17 years old was really enamored of this story until the end. I remember being really excited to get Batman 427 and be like, Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Or 420 rather. Yeah. 427 is later. That's the death of the family, but the Batman 420 where they're like, how are they going to end this? How can Batman save the day? And he doesn't, he just, you know, locks a man up. And there was a lot of anger in, you know, the trade organizations. I, I would read uh, comic scene magazine. And of course, you can actually read the letters pages of the original Batman comics if you got them, where people were I mad do. about this ending with Batman just basically saying, I'm going to, I can't beat you, so I'm going to leave you to die. Yeah. Rodrigo and Ashley, I'm, uh, we'll start with uh, Rodrigo first. What are your reactions to how Batman dealt with KG Beast? I, I was surprised about it a little bit. I mean, I'm not surprised that Batman chose to do that. I was just surprised that after the book showing us how um resourceful kg beast is over and over again that batman thinks that locking him in a room is going to work right (laughs) right you know it's like he's he's very strong he's very powerful he's very smart like he actually outsmarts batman a few times in this book or it's just like one step ahead of him so i'm like it seems like he'd figure out a way to get out of that room yeah eventually Ashley, what about you? Shocked by the ending or not shocked by the ending? Um, Not particularly shocked by the ending because this is like right around the time when the Comics Code Authority was on its way out. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the rules of that, right, was that the superhero always had to win. And I feel like this solution that we get in this issue still accomplishes that, but it's really pushing the envelope on what the definition of win Mm -hmm. is or what it means to become victorious and it's funny because you can draw a direct line between this issue and the super dick batman that i was talking about earlier right 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 right. i love the jim aparo art this is if you were to if you were to ask me what is my what is my remembrance of batman it's this and when we were talking earlier uh is either rodrigo or matthew i think when you're talking about the expressions the batman with those silhouette eyes you see that a lot in in Batman in, in Aparo when he just has a reaction and you just see these white eyes and the, and the, and the face on Batman reacting to stuff. It, I think it's really cool. Yeah. Aparo is one of the greats, especially when you put him on Batman at his peak 
but also I think at Batman's peak as well. Mm-hmm. And Aparo does something that is interesting in 1988 terms. Uh, Aparo has really, really long bat cowl ears. Yeah. And at this point in time, everybody was sort of, I think, forced to be on the same page as to how long the bat cowl ears were. And the short eared look, you know, as seen in the Dark Knight Returns was all about it. And Aparo was either not aware of this, or I like to think didn't care and had enough cachet that where he would draw what he wanted mm-hmm. and the editors would just freaking deal with it. But yeah. switching back and forth from Jim to other artists, you can see they definitely do shorter horns on the cowl and it cracks me up every mm-hmm. time. Then we get into a story arc that is super, super disturbing on a lot of different levels. Not only is it disturbing because uh, there's two serial killers running around killing women, but also in how they the character just comes right out on panel and talks about why he wants to kill women because they're they're asking for it. They don't know their place. Um, you know, he is definitely someone who would be all in on a certain radio show host who talks about the feminazis all the time. I mean, this is 19, what, This is 1988 is when this is coming out. 1988, Batman dealing with toxic masculinity is the the most pleasant surprise out of this. Oh, yeah. It's not only a pleasant surprise, but here's the part that I found super, super disappointing and scary is that it's 30 years later and we're still dealing with it in society. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's like what's fun about reading history. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, we do that a lot on the Legion Clubhouse where we're like, oh, look how this has uh, not aged well and why it's still around. But, yeah, it is. It's pretty bad. I tweeted out the the couple of panels that are the most disturbing uh, from this arc where the the main bad guy is just like, yeah, these women had it coming to him. People are going to look at me as a hero one of these days. And then I'm like, oh, man, I cannot wait until Batman punches him in the face. And then, of course, Batman does uh, confront him, punches him in the face. But. Batman isn't the one that ends up taking him out. Nope. Which is also another kind of shock ending in this thing and really kind of stresses the, uh, I don't, the depressive nature of Gotham city and how the city kind of tears you down because well, and I, I feel like the ending of that two issue arc is actually one of the weakest parts of this collection to me. Because on the one hand, I feel like it's meant to feel kind of empowering. But on the other hand, it's a murder. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it is a cold-blooded murder. And granted, the character being murdered has himself killed during the story. But when the, when the upbeat ending is a woman who might have been killed slashes open the killer's throat, I, I, I have trouble reading that as the happy ending or a win. I'm like... I'm not exactly sure how I feel about it, especially when his dying words are those, those B words won't leave you alone. Even when you're dying, I'm like, Oh, come on. Well, to be fair, I feel like Batman feels the same way that you do, Matthew. True. And you know, he kind of had to in 1989. It was still the rules, but yeah. (laughs) Well, I'm just talking about Gotham city wearing you down in that. Here's this woman whose sister was killed, who is now, intentionally provoking this guy to try and kill her so she can exact her revenge. And in the end, they're like, well, we're going to have to charge you with manslaughter. And she's like, well, yeah, what did you expect? Considering that the guy got off whenever they tried to charge him with, with murder before. Can I just say that the most disturbing thing about this entire series that we read 
was the acknowledgement that anything that Batman does isn't admissible in court. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, that like it, it, I, I just find that moment. It's like it's very clear that this is supposed to be like, a, I don't know what was popular in the 80s. Obviously, Law and Order wasn't around yet. But, you know, like, I don't know, Dragnet. Dragnet. I don't know. Like a, a moment in which like the bad guy gets out because the, the good guys didn't follow exactly the protocol or there's some extenuating circumstance, right? That's why it's supposed to feel that like in this point in the police procedural, but by actually acknowledging that Batman is a complete lawless vigilante and anything that he does is not admissible in court makes it, it, it like destroys the fiction of Gotham city. It does. Um, mm -hmm. because we always joke around that about that, you know, how like, oh yeah, well, how does Batman get anybody into jail? And you just assume that in Gotham city, the law, the laws are different. Right. And yeah. that stuff is admissible, but here they like straight up tell you that it isn't. And you're like, why aren't, why isn't Arkham just like all their gates, like just flying open and everybody runs out now that you have this case as precedent. Mm -hmm. Actually, that's, that's I, the point. Well, and that's one of the things that does happen, right? I mean, we do see that in many cases, and that's why a lot of the Arkham criminals just go in, get evaluated, and are out because of the, the legal technicalities of having a vigilante uh, securing crime evidence. But, Ashley, I'm very curious about your take on these two these two issues of the of the story, the the, the serial killer story. Um, in, they're interesting because you have to look at this through the lens of when it was created. And I feel like they're trying to say a lot, but by a modern standard, they're still slightly weird and problematic. Mm -hmm. But I would, I'd rather appreciate the attempt for the time than have it not done at all. And I also think that Batman in general should just have more serial killers and less weird clowns as bad guys. I, I would kind of agree with you because at the end of this, I'm like, well... Here we have Batman ta tackling a giant political issue. Then mm -hmm. we get Batman is tackling a social issue, mm -hmm. which is, again, I think really big and important. And for people that are like, well, that's that's not how our current superheroes are not supposed to be political or social warriors. Grow that's, up. That's, that's what these that's what both of these two series that we've been talking about are. But, yeah, I agree. I kind of wanted to see I don't want to see. You know, just let's throw in the serial killers killing women so that we can address this week after week after week. Uh, but I do like the fact that Batman is a, and this is that detective part that I was talking about earlier, where Batman is kind of a street level justice warrior uh, trying to take down these these criminals that, that are not the Joker or are not, you know, uh, the Penguin. And we don't really see except for KG Beast. This volume really doesn't have any over the top villains. And that's by design. I mean, the the thing about your post-crisis, immediate post-crisis Batman, was that focus on realism. Mm -hmm. And we see here that realism, especially in a Batman context, is very restraining and can be very damaging to the stories that you would expect from a Batman comic. So you do get into a point where you see Batman up against, you know, random thugs or just guys off the street or drug dealers or whatever it is that you've got. But you also get to the point where honestly, we all have to admit that if you're going with realism and if you're trying to write a realistic story, 
Batman is dead at this point because he died <laughs> years ago after being shot while wandering around the city in a cape. So this is this this is DC, and I think necessarily playing with levels of realism and trying to set maybe a nice benchmark of how real can we get right, right. in these stories and still maintain Batman. And the answer really comes down to real enough to where the Ayatollah Khomeini hides the Joker and then the Joker murders somebody and then Robin ends up dead. And so, you know, <laughs> yeah, so that does bring up a big point. This issue has the two issues leading up to the death in the family. This is where uh, the um, the drug dealer is beating up the woman and Jason Todd is kind of stalking him. And then uh, Batman is going to go check out this guy. Robin got there first. He's on the balcony. Then you cut to the man falling and Batman's like, tell me what happened. And Jason Todd's like, he slipped. Uh, we've already talked. We've already talked about those two issues back when we did the death in the family uh, episode of the major spoilers podcast. But this volume does not include the Joker beating Robin to death in this. Right. This issue before issue death in the family arc is not in there. Yeah, but they did include Batman annual number 12, which the less we say about that, the better. But this issue does include proto spawn cover as Ta Todd, Todd McFarlane, McFarlane does uh, Batman 423, which, yep. oh, man, that's a that's a crazy cape there. You got there going on, Batman. You got any chains? You got any uh, <laughs> got any devil words that you want to say? But. We've all talked about our love of Batman, the animated series. And one of my favorite episodes of Batman, the animated series is Legends of the Dark Knight, where these three kids are sitting around and saying, oh, here's what I heard about Batman. And so we get a flashback of like, you know, the the Silver Age Batman and giant typewriters and uh, uh, giant Joker heads and, and that kind of stuff. And you get another kid telling a tale of uh, the Dark Knight Returns uh, Batman. And then you got another one. Uh, I forget what the third one is. Uh, but issue 423 of Batman is basically a Legends of the Dark Knight tale told in comic book form where these three police officers are sitting around in a cafe and they're saying, well, I saw Batman rescue this jumper off a bridge and had these words uh, to tell him and made him change his life around. And that's why Batman is a great hero. And then another guy is like, oh, no, I saw Batman take out a whole uh, army of, of uh, punk rockers who were trying to take over this delicatessen and kill people and Batman's hardcore and rough. And then this With third the cop. the tiniest batarang. Yeah, the tiniest <laughs> batarang ever. Uh, and then the third cop comes up and goes, hey, I heard you guys talking about it. Uh, I actually did this case with Batman and he he did something really nice for these two kids whose whose parents had died and they were living on the street. And I actually saw Batman cry. And it's three very different takes on Batman. And in the end, the, the tough cop is like, oh, that's BS that Batman would cry. But it really shows you that Batman can be so many different things. And I really dug and I, I really forgot about this story until we read it, read it again uh, about how good that that story is. Now, you guys may not agree with me, but I, I kind of dug it getting Batman from three different three different uh, viewpoints. Yeah, I mean, that's that really encapsulates, I think, what we we're talking about that, uh, about earlier, that even within the same run of Batman, you can mm -hmm. have lots of different takes on Batman. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Although it's it is a little weird where Batman's like, listen, I got this guy that keeps adopting orphans. I'm going to send you to him. And if you uh, wind up as my sidekick, that might happen. Uh, he doesn't really <laughs> say that, but I mean, it's running through everybody's mind. Yeah, well, sure. Hey. Oh, go ahead. I, one of my favorite Batman stories actually is uh, very much in that same vein, Batman 250, 
it's the the Batman that nobody knows story where four little kids are having a sleepover and Bruce Wayne is their chaperone mm. and they're all describing their Batman and what mm-hmm. Batman really is. And at the end he puts on his costume and jumps out and goes, I think Batman looks like this. <laughs> the kids are all like, Oh, shut up, Mr. Wayne. We're going to bed now. <laughs> Ashley, any thoughts on, on this, uh, on this tale? I think this might be one of the best ones in the collection. Yeah. And I think it, it's kind of that Batman as an adoptive father, which we all like. And I think we like it because it speaks to the heart of Bruce Wayne and it puts to bed the notion that Batman is the identity instead of Bruce, mm-hmm. which I mm-hmm. don't like. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. Uh, I did mention that the Jason Todd stuff already, but so we don't have to re uh, go over that. But I will say Batman throwing a diehard battery at a thug is is still the best. Oh, man. Jason. Poor, poor Jason. Poor, poor yeah. Jason. He gonna die. I, I really, I gotta say, I enjoyed this volume. This was definitely a trip down memory lane. This is at, you know, when I was just all gung ho comic books, comic books, comic books. I was, I was that kid that was sneaking a comic book into my algebra class. And while the teacher was up there explaining stuff that I already know, I'd be back there in my notebook reading Batman comics. I was reading this stuff. And, uh, man, this, this brought back a lot of memory. So if you want to see what eighties Batman was about, I think this is a pretty solid volume. Now it is KG beast, but I still think this is a pretty solid volume and I would recommend it. Rodrigo, what are your final thoughts on this, on this uh, book? Um, you know, there's, I think people should be aware of two main, two big things. One, some real solid violence against women in this, oh, yeah. you know, seen as contemptible, you know, which, but you should just be aware of it. Uh, and also some just God awful Spanish. Um, <laughs> yeah, but even I could tell that the Spanish was bad and that, yeah, Oh God, it was so bad. bad. Um, and, uh, but other than that, I was really surprised at how much i enjoyed this usually i'm not a big batman fan and the older the story the like the more of a crapshoot it becomes i think mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um I, you just don't know what you're gonna get uh, as, as someone who's not very familiar with batman but i i actually enjoyed a lot of this i think that this gave us a pretty nuanced batman an interesting batman and a lot of like individual moments that were very cool very good. Matthew, some final thoughts on this volume from you. In a lot of ways. Um, and I don't want this to sound as terrible as it's going to sound. So bear with me. In a lot of ways, comics from the big two, specifically DC and Marvel, never really got past 1988, 1989. Um, a lot of the things that we see in this era are still the backbone of everything that's in the Marvel universe. Uh, Iron Man had his demon in the bottle. Superman had his uh, long hair. Batman had these stories. And this is Starlin's Batman, so it's very much a down-to-earth Batman. And it's the prototype for that modern Batman that turned into the 90s cliche of can't armor my head. The, you know, the thing of Batman has a plan for everything, which in its own way is no less silly than remembering to pack your super bat shark repellent, but it's presented in a way that feels more modern. It feels more approachable. So when you read this book, you're actually reading a lot of the skeleton, a lot of the prototype, a lot of the, the 
backbone of what will become the modern Batman. And as such, I feel like it ages a lot better than a lot of books from DC in 88. And 88 was a big year for me because I had a lot of money in 1988, relatively speaking, and nothing to spend it on because, you know, you're a high school kid. So I literally bought every comic book I could get my hands on. And I can tell you from experience, this is really solid. This is some of the best stuff coming out of DC at the time. And this is, you know, Jim Aparo. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, just walk away. You say Jim Aparo, that means, yes, it is good, my friends. Ashley, we're giving you the final word on Batman, the Cape Crusader, volume one. I know very little about Batman in the eighties outside of the staples of dark Knight, which I don't enjoy. And, uh, year one. So, it's interesting because right now I'm also working on reading through crisis on infinite earths for our Mm -hmm. crisis club project. Yeah. And I find that even though you can look at this issue and you can find the clunkers in it and you can see that stylistically, um, it's very different and it is very of the time when it was created kind of like, uh, Rodrigo said, I have really enjoyed reading this and I didn't feel too terribly bogged down by some of the weirdness of it. I think it's a really great collection. If people are looking to see what Batman was like during this time period, there is a really crappy annual and there is a big gap <laughs> of when Jason Todd dies and we kind of don't deal with it. Cause it's not relevant to this particular narrative thrust, but I think you could do a lot worse And I think we've read a lot worse collections um, that are tied to specific time periods for different characters. I think it's pretty good. Mm -hmm. And if people are looking to celebrate Batman for his birthday, this is a good one to get your hands on. Excellent. Thank you for that, Uh, Ashley, Matthew and Rodrigo. And listener, if you want to pick up this copy, uh, one thing you can do is there's a link in the show notes that will take you over to Amazon.com. And you can pick this book up uh, in a hardback form if you want. And when you make that purchase over there at Amazon, a little bit comes back our way, but it doesn't cost you anything extra. If you want a really good deal, and I mean a really good deal, and you have a Comixology account, this entire volume is going for $4.99 until March 30th. I couldn't pass that up. I had to get this over at Comixology. I was like, five bucks for, you know, like 20. It's not quite 20, but uh, 12 issues of comics. That is a great deal. You're never going to find a better deal like that ever again. Uh, So go check that out. Or please use that link over at Amazon.com to make the physical copy. I think that's where we're going to wrap it up. I hope you have a great Batman celebration birthday this weekend. And you've got something uh, big planned. But uh, in the meantime, I want to thank you for being part of the Major Spoilers experience. We love your feedback. So use the comments section at Major Spoilers to share your thoughts and reactions to this Bat episode. Or even better, send us an email to podcast at Majorspoilers.com. And don't forget, you can support this show and everything we do by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Majorspoilers Master Bruce. <laughs> we will be back next week because we know that you love comics and we do too. And we're going to move to Batman's uh, 160th birthday beginning next week. We'll talk with you soon. Stop talking about comic books or I'll kill you. Craven.
podcast is copyright 2019 by Major Spoilers Entertainment, LLC.